Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. If you're in South Carolina in 1862 and your town is named Secessionville, you should probably expect an attack from the federal government. That's what happened, and we're going to talk about it with author Patrick Brennan, whose book Secessionville, Assault on Charleston, tells the story of that obscure but important battle. We'll be back with Patrick Brennan in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's it's just a -a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed. They're more creative. And if nothing else, a humorous speaker leaves each and every one of them with a smile on their face. You need comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, your audience might just doze off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on, pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Dalnack, at russisfunny.com because, well, russischubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. They're not being a state of East Carolina. But speaking on my own behalf and for me and my ideas and not for the university or the history department and certainly not for some of my particular colleagues. Uh, But that's another story for another day. Um, Today uh, we will be talking, as as always, about uh, we'll have hours of serious commentary, as the commercial puts it, about the Civil War, but I do want to start first with a recognition of the passing of another giant in the field of Civil War studies. As we are speaking to you at this moment in April 2006, uh, I've just seen the obituary of uh, Dr. Grady McQuinney, uh, who is known to 
most of us who read and write about the Civil War, particularly for his landmark book written with Perry D. Jameson, Attack and Die, which looked at Civil War, let's find it on the desk here, uh, Attack and Die, Civil War Military Tactics and the Southern Heritage. This was uh, when it came out, and let me give you the exact date, in uh, 1982, a very uh, controversial and much-talked-about book in which uh, Dr. McQuinney advanced the idea that Civil War tactics, particularly Southern tactics, were influenced not only by the technology and, uh, available in the West Point training, but also by the, the Southern cultural heritage, uh, descent from the uh, ultimately the, the Celts of, of ancient Britain. That argument has not stood the test of time particularly well, but it did foreshadow uh, the the fruitful mixing of cultural studies and more traditional uh, Civil War uh, political and military history, and it did get people talking once again about just how Civil War tactics worked. Uh, the rifle musket controversy that followed in the 1990s was not quite uh, uh, on the same topic, but not, not unrelated either. And it, it is uh, certainly a loss to the Civil War community uh, uh, to see the passing of, of Grady McQuinney. He was, uh, his obituary notes, also one of the very first doctoral students of David Donald. And uh, I had the privilege of being uh, Dr. Donald's last graduate student before he retired uh, in the 1990s. So uh, we were sort of bookends of, of uh, David Donald's teaching career, his writing career, fortunately, goes on and on. But uh, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Grady McQuinney once at a Southern Historical Association meeting, and we compared notes on the, the young and less young David Donald, uh, equally energetic in both incarnations, and uh, got to talk about uh, various other things. And he was certainly the the fascinating character and gentleman that he has portrayed in his written obituaries and, and elsewhere. Uh, so. Uh, Grady McQuinney leaves the scene of Civil War writers, and uh, uh, it is uh, a loss to us all. Well, let us move on uh, from the past into the present, and today we're going to talk about uh, various topics uh, with author Patrick Brennan. Patrick, are you there? I'm here, Terry. Patrick, thank you for uh, for making real life bend to the the will of Civil Talk Radio and, and be with us today. I know uh, we all have real jobs and real things to do, and it's not easy to get time away, so thank you for doing this. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me to do it. Uh, tell, tell us about your uh, your real job, your day job. Uh, you don't write Civil War books all the time, I gather. No, I, I own a recording studio in downtown Chicago, and I own a music production company. So most of what I do is either... Uh, work as an office manager or as a sound engineer or as a musician scoring documentaries. I've scored uh, probably 170, 180 documentaries since 1996 for A&E, the History Channel. Have some of them been Civil War topics? Actually, um, I approached one of the Towers Productions here in Chicago about when they when they were um, producing shows for history's mysteries, and I approached them about the Hunley. And yes. since I'd had a lot of contacts in Charleston from writing Secessionville, um, 
and so I acted as the historical consultant, although there probably would have been other um, historians that were more apt uh, or, or more expert in the field. Um, they, they chose me, huh. and I, I put that documentary together. When when scoring a documentary, do you have the script in front of you? Do you see uh, rough cuts of what's being filmed? How do you decide what music goes with, with what, what the I, images are? Generally what I get is a uh, cut of the documentary, which is called a fine cut, so there can still be some changes, but they're, they're pretty close to it. And it has a voiceover on it, not necessarily the voiceover that's going to be the real one. It's a rough voiceover. Maybe one of the producers sat down and did a voiceover just for timing. And I scored to that. And basically what I do is sit in front of a computer and watch the documentary and I have a bunch of keyboards and different kind of signal processing. And uh, I have a lot of virtual instruments. I have grand pianos that are just plug-ins for uh, the uh, program that I use. So if I want a grand piano, I just go to that plug-in and bring it up. And so you do you write original music or, or yeah. use pre-recorded? Uh, yeah, and it, as I watch it, I'll, I might improvise some themes, and if I like a theme, I'll go back into the computer and maybe move it around or do it one more time, and then I'll orchestrate it. It might be a, a simple piano theme that gets built up into an orchestral thing, or it might be just a sound. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, kind of ambient sort of things that are used in documentaries now. The style, music style documentaries have just changed much over the last 10 years where it used to be people wanted very orchestral sort of thing and now they want a very kind of uh, kind of ambient, rhythm-driven rhythm thing that might not have grand themes anymore. It's more of a more feeling sort of thing. More, you can get that by manipulating sound. More Moby than Brahms. You know that's pretty good. Uh, but you, you're you're pretty hip for a <laughs> for an old guy. <laughs> yeah, almost more Eno than Brahms. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Moby might be considered too uh, too melodic. Too melodic, yeah. This sort of thing. Yeah. Well, that um, I have to say, I'm fascinated by sound in in documentaries. Uh, we on the show, I've talked to. Uh, uh, the people at Wide Awake Films who make uh -huh. uh, DVDs of Civil War, based on Civil War reenactments. One thing that always struck me, without getting too far off topic here, as a kid I would watch the World War II documentaries that were on all the time in the 1960s, and every time a plane crashes, there'd be a big uh, crash sound, and when sure. soldiers marched by, there'd be the jackboots crunching in the gravel. And at some point, I, it dawned on me, I don't know how I figured, when I realized it, that those weren't the original sounds of the 1940s. Right. That those were all silent films, and the sounds are added. Right. And when, when you're involved in documentaries, the, the, these are just the, the, the musical score. You're not adding the, uh, the, the rifle fire or anything like that. No, but the, I, can, I can support what is there, you know, musically or sound-wise. Especially, I'm working on a series now for National Geographic called Final Report that uh, goes into different, uh, uh, mostly modern uh, historical moments like the D.C. Snipers and uh, Jonestown and that sort of thing. And I'll end up making the music support 
the kind of sounds that they have on the track already. That they, since you know most of the documentaries now do have sound, uh, you know right. have found sound on exactly. it. Exactly, the original recorded sound. Right, exactly. Exactly. But with um, well, do you ever use historical music? You think Ken Burns, you know, prototypical film, mm-hmm. uh, uses a certain amount of, of actual period composition, uh, not not the comp- not period recording, obviously, but uh, right. uh, uh, very rarely. Uh, they, you know, it's. Uh, you have to go through a rights issue. Even the older stuff, you, you don't have to worry about that much. But uh, it's it's more interesting for me to, if if we're doing a historical sort of thing, to write music that's of that period. It's more of a fun challenge rather than to you know uh, do the Yellow Rose of Texas or something. Right. Well, even the the, the theme they play at the beginning of this show, the Ashokan Farewell, that everyone right. associates with the Ken Burns documentary is is a late 20th century piece. Right, it's, it's not Larry Packer, it's... Uh, uh, Unger, Jay Unger. Jay Unger and his wife, yes. So, uh... It, it was it in Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys? Do you remember them? I, I do remember, yes, I, I actually, I'm old enough to remember Cat Mother. And the yeah, Night. I believe he was in that band. Really? That, uh, there's a trivia connection with that. Yeah, and he's, uh... Shokin uh, Reservoir, which is up by Woodstock. Uh, Jay lives up there. Okay. And has influenced a lot of people. Uh, the band yeah. lived very near there and used to go hang out there. And, uh, you know, a lot of in the late 60s, uh, those two albums they did, which kind of captured some other America, some historic America. That was, that was, that was part of the physical thing that was influencing them. We did, and, and tying that back to our, our show, uh, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down is, is a song exactly. that, that captures the spirit of, of 1865 without being actually from the period. Exactly, exactly. And probably the only rock song that references uh, Stoneman. Yes, it, it, and if you're like me, it just you grit your teeth every time you hear the Joan Baez version. Oh, so much, Cavalry. Stoneman's Cavalry. We all know General Stoneman. Uh, oh. Yeah, and you know, among band fans, that's that's quite a heresy, too. Yeah, they, they like it the original one. Yeah, of course. Uh, as, as well they should. Well, now when... Uh, to say one more more thing as, as we, we creep towards the session, Bill, here, but uh, you live and, and work in Chicago, mm-hmm. and I lived there for a few years around North Avenue and, and Sedgwick. Uh, it's by the L stop there. Really? And just loved uh, the city. It was a wonderful place to live. It's a great city. If you if you can ignore the weather most of the time. <laughs> the weather's pretty harsh. I'm, I'm basking right now in North Carolina, 70 degrees, and yeah. a little bit of cloud outside, and yeah. I'm enjoying it thoroughly. My friends back in Chicago are... Whatever it is today there, I'm sure. It's, it's uh, probably mid-50s, and the wind is blowing off the lake very coldly. So as it is. Uh, Not too long ago on uh, 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 the TV show, the, the Colbert Report, uh, he happened to mention the Wiener's Circle, uh, the really? hot dog stand on, on uh, the Clark and uh, Wrightwood around there. Yeah, sure. I, uh, not far from my old neighborhood, there was a great used bookstore. I used to get Civil War books there. And I just felt like the hippest guy in America, like, wow, I know the place he's talking about, <laughs> national TV. Was that on Lincoln, the used bookstore on Lincoln? 
It was no. It was actually the one on. It was Aspidistra. It was the name of it. I don't think it's there anymore. No, it's not. Uh, it, this one was on on Clark. Now we've had Dan Weinberg on this show. Uh huh. It's a good uh, friend of mine. Yes, uh, Dan's a great guy, and, and obviously you've you've been in the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. It's certainly one of the Civil War meccas in uh, in America. You walk in there and you're you're just happy right away. Just uh, all those those wonderful first editions and yeah. rare books. Uh, it is really, and any listener who has not been to Chicago, uh, uh, when you go, make absolutely make time to go to the the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop. You will not be disappointed. When he was on Chestnut, I lived on the third floor of that building. Really? Which is supposedly the apartment that Carl Sandburg rented. When he was in town here uh, researching Lincoln for his Lincoln book, uh, I, I, I love those ties of history, the, the way things yeah. tie together. Now, uh, how did you get interested in the Civil War? I think it was probably because of the centennial. I was, well, I don't want to say how old I was, but I was in an impressionable age at the centennial. I guess I was nine or ten. Mm-hmm. And um, the. Um, you know, it was front page news. Uh, I remember the uh, uh, April 1961 edition of the Chicago Tribune, April 12th, had a, a color picture of Fort Sumter being fired upon. And, and some, there was a neighbor down the street who was a great reader, and um, he he saw that I was kind of interested in you know all this news that was going on about the Civil War, and he recommended that my parents get me that American Heritage Civil War book, the Bruce Catton one, that has those great maps or the great battle scenes. I, I'm I'm laughing because that those maps have come up on this show, fifty percent of the episodes. Yeah, that's what brought us in. I, I remember them vividly. Uh, wonderful maps. Yeah, and you get your magnifying glass out. And I remember counting that like eighty people attacked the bloody lane <laughs> at Antietam, and I thought, wow, that's a lot. You know. <laughs> well, that uh, I was talking. Uh, we had Rob Hodge, the uh, oh sure reenactor guru, not long ago, sure. and discussing the same thing and, and trying to recreate those maps. With our Marks blue and gray figures, uh, toy soldiers. Yeah, exactly. Only eighty of them. So attacking Buddy Lane, maybe I could get eighty plastic guns. <laughs> I used to do that out in my backyard. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd cut. Uh, we had an area that my mother said, "Okay, you can you can do your weird stuff here," and I would like cut uh, a, a river and put saran wrap down so that the water wouldn't disappear down into the dirt. Wow. And then put the water in the saran wrap so I could have a river. And of course, I had the regular edition and then the deluxe edition of those Mark Civil War soldiers. Yeah, yeah those those came out next. They were very nice. Oh, they were great. Wow. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I hear the the music saying uh, that we're going to take a short break in just a moment. And I don't know if this has ever happened where I have not actually gotten to ask the author about the book in the entire first section of our conversation, but it's been fascinating. Uh, And I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have thus far. Uh, But we will take a short break, and I promise our listeners we will get to Secessionville in South Carolina when we come back with Patrick Brennan on Civil War Talk Radio. (laughs) 